So this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26, so we continue to make our way through Matthew's gospel. And this morning, as you turn there, I want you to maybe just to begin to imagine in your, moment, in your eyes for a moment that Matthew 26 is in some way this storm on the horizon. Um, as you begin to ponder it for a moment, you begin to see clouds coming together. You notice and feel on your arms and amongst your body that the breeze is beginning to pick up. You, you can see that things are growing darker and darker. Occasionally you hear this peal of thunder and it begins to reverberate off the hills around you. And you recognize and see at a distance there is some type of storm that is coming your way. Matthew 26 whispers to us today that there is a storm coming. And it's not just any storm. This is the most epic of storms. This is the storm of God's judgment that is going to land clearly upon His own Son. The sinless Son of God is going to be betrayed and die on the cross in the midst of Passover. In fact, as we see the storm approaching today, we're going to realize how polarizing this King is. To accept and follow Jesus is to receive a suffering servant. That may seem easy to us, but the reality is from this text, the most religious of people that day, in fact, one of his own 12, are rejecting him. Thus, what we might know about him the most is that we should be on guard, right? Those of us maybe who have been around the church a lot or experienced a lot, we today, this text should caution us that we don't rush past and miss who Jesus truly is. In fact, today at the outset, you need to prepare yourself for this storm by asking this question. How do I plan to escape the judgment of God? How do I plan to escape the judgment of God? Today we come to this truth of seeing the Passover and the new covenant, knowing that Jesus' death brings the new covenant that guarantees our forgiveness. The very words that we've been seeing this morning echo and reverberate throughout this chapter. Matthew 26 is an interesting chapter again that begins to unfold the final days of Jesus' life. That's where we are. And today looks and launches into Thursday. And as we'll begin to hear about the Lord's Supper and begin to see all these things taking place, Matthew 26, in fact, reveals maybe two suppers that happened. One uh, a little bit prior to the Thursday Passover meal is the home at Simon the leper, and Jesus is going to be anointed. But before that happens, in both moments, there's little snippets that Matthew gives us to help us prepare for what's going to happen. It's almost like a menu set before the meal to say, hey, here's what's happening. And then as you get to the meal, you see these things unfolding. So if you have your copy of God's Word again, let's look now to Matthew chapter 26. And the first truth that comes to us is this. Death is coming. Death is coming. Listen to what happens here as Matthew opens up, beginning in verse 1 of Matthew 26. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, remember he's been preaching, right, for about... There chapters 24 and 25. We've been here all about the end times, the end of the world. So he finishes these sayings and he says to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. 
Notice what Jesus says to them here again, beginning here in the opening verses. He says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man, notice what he says here to them, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He says, guys, that's what's coming. I want you to know that my death is no accident. And to say to you and I today as we read this text to remind ourselves that God is actually still in control. Maybe today it feels in your life or as you look amongst the world that evil is in fact winning maybe it's someone that you love that sickness rages on and instead of getting better just continues to grow worse maybe the relationships in your home or your family instead of getting better they too have grown worse the divide that you thought in our nation might surely soon sometime get better instead of getting better it seems to be dividing and getting worse Yet this text here, hearing Jesus' words saying that two days the Passover is coming and I want you to know that the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. It says to us and it reminds us that, guys, God does some of His greatest works in the midst of the storms of our lives. In other words, God doesn't forsake us in our storms. He draws near. God doesn't forsake us in our storms. He draws near. I think it is at least startling that to read verse 3, that the chief priests, notice there, the chief priests, the elders, they've gathered together in the palace of the high priest Caiaphas, and they're plotting together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. The high priest, guys, the chief priests, the elders, it was their responsibility to keep the Torah, the Old Testament law of Moses, It was their responsibility to help the people in their relationship with God. And yet it's those very people who are rejecting God himself. Notice their caveat there in verse 5. Guys, listen, we we, we can do this. We've got to get him by stealth and kill him. But we can't do it during the feast. Why? What are they fearing? They're fearing an uproar among the people, a revolt amongst the people. Why? Remember, Jesus, one of the things he's just done is he's raised Lazarus from the dead. He's done all of these miracles throughout Jerusalem, throughout Galilee. I mean, everybody knows who Jesus is. And they're divided on exactly what that means. Whether he's just some great prophet. Is he truly the Messiah? Some think he's this heretic, right, that's come to destroy Jerusalem and and what they have done there of the law and the Romans that have come in and crushed them because of him. But the truth is clear. This scene is eerie. Again, these clouds are beginning to form the darkness as you open just the first few verses of Matthew 26. And it's a reminder that we need to wrestle with what is happening and when it takes place. Why? Because Matthew writes again to a Jewish audience. And remember what Jesus says. He says this important thing. Look what it is here. Verse 2. You know that after two days, what's coming, church? The Passover. Guys, this, this is like, this is the feast of feasts. This is the most, this is like 4th of July, Christmas, your birthday, your anniversary, like everything all wrapped into one. Like this is the most epic of times for the the people, the Jewish people. Why? Because the, the Passover looks back to this time when the people, God's people, were in Egypt for 400 years in slavery and oppression and they couldn't free themselves. And what did God do? Well, he showed up for a people that couldn't free themselves and he brought freedom. How? Well, he brought plagues upon the land, but finally, there that final plague. It's when the angel of death passed through. And the only way to be spared from the angel of death taking your firstborn 
was that a lamb had to be killed. And that lamb was killed and over the doorpost of the homes, they would take the blood of that lamb and they would spread it over the doorpost to say someone had to die in the place of my child, that my child might be spared. In fact, so that night the angel passes over and all the firstborn throughout Egypt die. Pharaoh's, even Pharaoh couldn't protect his own child. He gets up during the night and tells Moses and the people, what you've been saying, let my people go. Get out of here and go. But soon after, he changes his mind and begins to chase them. The people of Israel find themselves trapped by the Red Sea, but you know the story by the power of God. What's God do to those waters? He parts them, doesn't he? And they walk through on dry land. Well, the Egyptians soon chase after them, but the, the waters come back caving on them, right? And they are drowned and the army... And there's the people of Israel rescued on this side. And what remains the Egyptian army on the other? The the people of Israel now heading toward the promised land. It's there that God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and the law. That they have this new covenant. It's called the Mosaic Covenant. That God's giving them the law. And they are calling this, this covenant, which indicates a formal relationship, to say, God, here's what you're calling us to do. We are responding through faith that we will do that. It's interesting that they take the blood of another lamb and it's scattered there, splattered upon the people and upon the testimony to say, listen, God, we, we, we fully affirm that we're going to be obedient to this. Why does all that matter? Because it's 1,400 years since that took place. And here is the people of Israel. Yes, in the promised land, but under the rule of the Romans. The truth is they couldn't set themselves free. They couldn't keep this law good enough. That's why Jesus is saying a new lamb has come. Not just any lamb, a better lamb, a perfect lamb. And there's going to be a new death and there's going to be a new covenant because they, the Jewish people, just like us, could never uphold the law well enough. In fact, an outward law can never change an inward heart. Yet into that moment steps the Son of Man who has come to seek and to save the lost. So we see this moment happening at Passover. And again, it should not be lost upon us that Jesus is coming to die. And so that's what begins to unfold next. But before that takes place, we hear this truth. Jesus prepared for death. Now, in some ways, that's what's called a double entendre, right? A statement that has multiple meanings, at least two, right? And and the reality is this. Yes, we see Jesus prepared for death. He knows it's coming. He's just said that. But now in this story, Jesus will actually be prepared for death as Mary will come and anoint him with oil. Let's pick that up here again, beginning in verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, assumingly a, a leper that's been healed by Jesus, A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, again, we don't have the identification that other gospel writers give us, again, because this is a familiar story that's told. 
But what we do know is that this woman here that's identified simply as a woman here in in verse 7 of Matthew 26, that John chapter 12 tells us that this is in fact Mary, the sister of Lazarus who's just been raised from the dead, the sister of Martha. Notice what also it says there that this alabaster flask, it just simply notes that it's a very expensive ointment. But Mark 14 tells us that this ointment was so expensive that if it would have been sold in the marketplace, it would have brought one year's wages. This is a great expense. This is lavish. Right? I mean, so this is extremely lavish and expensive. But I think something also greater here is happening in this moment. Jesus is speaking about his death and the fact that there, there are those who are plotting to kill him. Right? He's going to be betrayed. He's just said that. There's the Passover comes. But notice what Jesus says here at the end. He says, I want you to know what this lady has done. Look at verse 12. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to do what, church? Prepare me for what? To prepare me for burial. Scholars tell us that the reason why this is so important is, is that typically the Jewish people, as they died, they were, their bodies were anointed. But there was one caveat to that. If you were a criminal, you didn't receive that type of ointment and anointing after your, after your death. How's Jesus going to die? As a criminal. On the cross. So in an amazing way, in God's mercy and grace, this is His Son receiving this anointing that would be not received after because of the way He's going to die. I think the moment is also ironic, right? That the twelve are standing around there, those who know Jesus the most. They ought to be the ones who are, who are worshiping and doing the sacrifice. But instead, it's what this, this, this society might consider those who are the lesser. It's a woman that's coming here in this moment who's worshiping and suffering, the, serving the suffering Savior. To those of you here today, I think it may remind us, maybe you feel like you don't measure up. Maybe it's something in your past, something you did, or the way you used to live. Maybe it's the fact that you didn't grow up in a Christian family. Maybe as you look around the church today, it's because you don't know what other people know. You don't even are sure of all the books or or the Bible or so much information, just basic stuff. You just feel like, man, I don't really know what other people know. I think this moment, this woman just compels all of us, just seek Jesus. Just seek Jesus. Don't let others distract you from your daily worship and sacrifice. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's a pretty poignant moment. Look at this statement here. Verse 8. And when the disciples saw, she pours this expensive ointment on his head, preparing him for burial. Listen to their statement. That they're indignant. Listen to this moment. And they asked the question, why this what? Why this waste? That, that's what they see and that's what they think. But listen to what happens here. I love it. Look what Jesus says, verse 10. Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a what? A beautiful thing. You see that? Let's see if we can make it both come together. Why this waste? A beautiful thing. Right? It, does that not shout to us that we often aren't the best judges of other people's sacrifice or their hearts? These are the disciples, guys. And they see it as a waste And Jesus calls it a beautiful thing. And Jesus then closes out this this moment here in verse 13 by saying to us, Truly I say to you that wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Does that that lost on you this morning? Is that not astonishing? That 2,000 years later in Greensburg, Kentucky, 
We are here, in fact, talking about some Jewish woman who poured perfume on the head of a Jewish rabbi. But we're fulfilling the very words of Christ. The very thing that he said would happen. I think this has to remind us that our seemingly small sacrifices may seem insignificant to others and maybe at times even to ourselves, but the Lord sees our obedience. Hallelujah. He sees you doing things like teaching that class or sitting with that child in church, going door to door on a Tuesday afternoon sharing the gospel. He sees those things that are done in worship and service of Christ while others may see and think that you are wasting your time and wasting your life. Christ sees it as a beautiful thing. Wow. Beloved, I pray that encourages you to stay the course, to not grow weary So one meal is passed, another meal is to come in Matthew 26. But again, prior to that meal, we are given, again, maybe a short snippet or a menu of what's to come at this meal. And here's the reality. Betrayal is coming. So we've heard that death is coming and then Jesus was prepared for death by Mary anointing him with oil. But now we hear that betrayal is coming. Look at me, you would, beginning in verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. That's a hard statement to stomach. Just just be honest with ourselves. Then one of the who? Mm. Not like some outsider, not somebody that like agnostic, not some atheist, not some Roman ruler, not some Gentile pagan. This is... This is one of the twelve. I mean, he's walked with Jesus. He's seen the miracles. He's assumingly preached the gospel. Assumingly, he's been a part of miracles himself as he went out. This guy, one of the twelve. We're going to talk more about Judas in the coming weeks, so I'll let my comments be brief here. But I think one thing should be emphasized. Look what it says. He goes to the chief priest and he asks him, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And notice what it says. They paid to him what, church? 30 pieces of silver. Exodus chapter 21 verse 32 says that that was the price that was to be paid if a slave was gored to death. What does that say to us? That Judas and the religious leaders do not see Jesus as valuable. And I think that's part of the irony that's happening in Matthew 26. That they are contrasted with this lady who saw that Jesus was so valuable that she was worth maybe her greatest treasure. And she was worth even submitting herself and humbling herself and her pride to worship Jesus. But yet Judas values Jesus so little that he's willing to betray him for such a small price. I think we all need to ask ourselves this question. Am I more like Judas or like that woman? I think it's interesting that the marginalized woman of that day got it right, but the privilege of that... that privileged disciple that day missed it perhaps there might be a warning to us who are privileged to hear this blessed gospel on a regular basis are we taking the gospel and jesus for granted maybe just consider this do you plan your sundays around gathering with the church Do you set aside intentional time daily for you to be alone with the Word and for your family to worship together in your homes? 
Do you find ways to join the church in serving our community and going on mission? Or do you find more excuses and reasons why you can't? If not, I just want to ask, what needs to change in your heart and my heart? Because I struggle with some of those things too, guys. What needs to change in light of this that we aren't simply just one of the twelve, one of the people of the church who hear and know all this stuff, but fail to worship and value who Christ truly is? It's been said that Judas betrayed the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver, and yet we have done it for much less. This betrayal here prepares us for the meal and the combo that is coming. Listen to what happens now, beginning in verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, what? Rabbi. He says to him, You have said so. I don't know if you can see it here or not. But did you hear the question the disciples were asking? One after another, is it I what? Lord. But when it came time for Judas, what did he ask? Is it I what? Rabbi. There's this seemingly Matthew showing us this moment where maybe Jesus, Judas just sees Jesus as this teacher. A teacher that doesn't do what he thinks he ought to do. Like if he's actually Lord, then he throws off Roman oppression. He sets us free. He brings the kingdom. He does what we think he ought to do. But maybe in this moment, there's just this little bit of revelation about the heart of Judas. He doesn't call him Lord. He calls him Rabbi. Maybe it's, maybe it's not major. I don't know what Matthew was hoping we would see in that. But I do think it's ironic that the rest of them are asking, is it I, Lord? And when it comes to Judas, he says, is it I, Rabbi? Also in this moment, right, I think it's important we kind of frame it around us. The Passover meal is prepared on Thursday. So that's what the disciples have done. They've gone to the village. They found the house that they're going to have it in. And when Thursday night comes, that's when they partake the meal. Now you have to understand, though, for the Jewish audience, their day begins at nightfall. So it's actually Friday that they begin to celebrate the Passover meal, even though it's our Thursday night. But I think in the midst of this, there's this gentle whisper of the sovereignty of God. And man's responsibility. Look what it says here. Verse 24. The Son of Man goes what? As it is written of him. It, it, it's a gentle whisper, but I think it's a whisper nonetheless that, again, even this betrayal, even this satanic coup from one of the twelve is not beyond the scope of God's rule and reign. Yet God's sovereignty doesn't eliminate man's human responsibility. Wow, look what it says. Judas has been looking, literally looking for an opportunity to betray him. It's a small glimpse, but a glimpse nonetheless that reminds us that God is not the author of evil. But he does rule and reign over evil and he uses it for his own good and own glory. It's a small moment. The Son of Man goes that is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. 
there it is, this moment, this tension of God's sovereignty, of leading the Son of God to the cross on the Passover, nonetheless, to die for the sins of the people. But yet it's also one of the twelve who is betraying Him. So we've had death, an anointing, a betrayal. And I think everything kind of culminates this storm, kind of leads us to this last and final point, that Jesus overcomes death and betrayal to bring the new covenant. Jesus overcomes all of this. We might even say Jesus uses all of this. God is using death and betrayal and all of these things to bring the new covenant. Read with me, you would, verses 26 to 30 of Matthew 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. So this is at the Passover meal. All right, so this is our Thursday night. It's now their Friday. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my what? This is my body. Now, now look, Jesus takes the bread. The bread, right, was, again, without any yeast, so it's flat. Why? Because that's a reminder of what they did, right? They didn't have time to, to prepare the the yeast, the bread to even rise. And so it was made that night of Passover and there was no yeast so they could take it with them and eat it along the way because they would be leaving Egypt that quickly, that fast. So at the meal, they would take that, right? And this bread, this, this much more, more stiff bread. And Jesus takes that bread and he, and he breaks it and he gives it to them. But something changes in this moment. He says, this is my what? My body. It's a, it's a deviation from the script. This is not how Jews celebrate the Passover. It's a, it's a deviation. And he says, guys, I want you to know that the bread is actually, it is my body. Now, the reality probably in this moment, the disciples don't have a clue what Jesus is actually talking about. What is he, what's he, this is his, what, no, what? I can only imagine they must be looking around each other pondering, but you and I have the privilege to be at this time and place in history, and we look back to the cross, and we know when we hear those words, this is my body, to say, oh man, this is more than just bread. This is more than just the Passover in Egypt. This is looking forward to the cross. And this moment then steps Jesus with maybe an even more epic statement in verse 27 and 28, and he took a cup. Right? They would have different cups throughout the meal, cups of wine. They would drink and they would say different things and remember different things about the Passover. And so Jesus takes one of these cups and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my what, church? It's my blood. There's been a change, right? This isn't just something we're looking back to remember. The Passover lamb that spared the, the children of Israel, the firstborn. This is now new. But This is a new body. This is a new blood. There's something changing here in this moment. The Passover for the Jewish people who now recognize Jesus as the Messiah is looking forever different. He says, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood. And notice what he says here about this blood. He calls it the blood of the what? Of the covenant. And he says, I want you to know this blood brings about a new covenant. There's a new land that brings a new covenant. This is the very thing that Jeremiah said would happen. Look what he says in Jeremiah 31, beginning verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a what? A new covenant. All right, so that's what he's talking about. Jesus is picking up on that right here. With the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their forefathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they what? Though I was their husband, Jesus, the Lord says I was faithful, but my people weren't. But there's coming a new covenant. Listen to what he says about it. For this is the covenant. So again, he's talking about this new covenant. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. 
I will put my law. Notice what he says here, significant, significant here. I will put my law where? Within them. And I will write it where? On their hearts. This is not just something on a page. It's something that will get inside of you. This word will transform you from the inside out. So we said earlier. An outward law could never change an inward heart. But the work that God is going to do by the sending of His Son is so dramatic that it transforms us from the inside out. This is the new covenant. And He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Look at us. He says, man, what a... And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all what? Know me. It's a covenant of relationship. That's the intention of covenants is to be a relationship, not rules. He desires to know you, that you would worship him and experience his glory and his goodness and his gentleness, his peace, his joy. For they shall all know me. Oh, man, listen to this. This is going to, man, it's going to... From, I told you, bro, I heard it over there. Uh Uh-huh, I don't know who that was, but mm, yeah, man, I'm feeling it. From the least of them to what? The greatest. Nobody's left out. Hallelujah. Hallelujah! Dude, this is good news. I mean, unless you recently something's changed, you're not a Jew in here. This is a reminder to Gentiles. It's a reminder to Mary. This society says that you're pushed to the background. Mary, you're a woman. Stay in your place. And Mary comes forward and anoints. Why? Because she has hope that there's a new covenant that even the least of these are accepted. In fact, the least of these are the greatest in that kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. And that's what he's bringing. And he says it's a new covenant. Declares the Lord. Notice what this covenant is based upon. I love this. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. Guys, that's the very thing. Listen to what Jesus says here. Again, rewind it back with me just for a moment. For this is my blood, verse 28 of Matthew 26. For this is my blood of the covenant, right? Looking back, echoing the words, Jeremiah 31, which is poured out for many. What is it for, guys? For what? For the forgiveness of sin. Guys, this covenant is the new one. Why? Because they couldn't, just like you and I couldn't, keep the old one. This covenant, I want you to know, it's based upon grace and not grit. It's based upon mercy and not merit. Hallelujah, church. What hope we have that we can be forgiven, not by something we do, but what He's already done. It's the gospel, the good news that God sent, the true Passover lamb, the perfect Passover lamb, who could save us. From our sins. See, the judgment that they were spared for was for a moment. The reality is their firstborn still died. But guys, this blood, this covenant will save you for eternity. You'll never die. It's interesting that, right, again, both of these Passovers represent sons dying. Both of them, in some sense, take the judgment back in Egypt. They suffer the judgment of the refusal to let God's people go. And now, guess what? They were guilty. Egypt was guilty. But this one, this son, he's innocent. But that's good news. Because now when he goes to the cross and dies, he doesn't die for his own sins. He dies for your sins and my sins. And he loves you so much that that's what he longs and desires to do. It's a new covenant. 
Again, it's based upon grace and not your grit. It's based upon mercy and not your merit. It's for the forgiveness of sins. As one pastor said about this new covenant, it's here that Jesus promises victory over our greatest fear, death, and answers our greatest need, forgiveness. It's in this moment that Jesus declares he is going to have victory over your greatest fear, death. And he is going to provide for your greatest need, forgiveness. It's important that as we look at this, right, it's, it's what brings us to the table, right? We're remembering this very moment. Now, we have other instruction and in passages like 1 Corinthians 11. But as we take of that Passover meal, right, as we partake of the Lord's Supper now, as we call it and we know it, we celebrate not an exodus from slavery to Egypt. We celebrate an exodus of slavery for the sin. They celebrated the Passover of their firstborn. We celebrate the passing over of all of our sins. They celebrated deliverance into the promised land. We celebrate deliverance into the kingdom of heaven. Guys, as you partake of the Lord's Supper, remember, you stand in a precarious place of looking back, but also looking forward. You look back to the cross to see what the Son of God did, dying on the cross that you might have the forgiveness of sins. But as you partake of that bread and that cup, you also look forward. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. It is a proclamation that Christ is coming and there is a new kingdom. I hope this is a word of encouragement, grace, and mercy, and hope to the church today. I pray it is like, oh, thank you. It is not about my track record or my ability to be good enough. It is about what Christ has already done. Let me work in response and admiration and love. Let my ointment flow back to him, not because that will make him receive me, but because I've already been received. But there are others in this room that the storm is coming and you're not yet prepared. You must wrestle with the fact that the Son of God here from his own lips, said that you and I need the forgiveness of our sins. Have you been forgiven? Guys, good people don't make it in. All roads don't lead home. The call for every single one of us here is to repent, to turn from our sinful ways and look to Christ who can provide the forgiveness that you need. Because no matter how good you are here today, the reality is it will never take away all your bad. Today, I present before you the perfect sacrifice, the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. You'll either crown Him as King or you will crucify Him. There is no middle ground. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank you for the opportunity we have had to hear this word, this hope. I pray, God, indeed, it is an encouragement to the souls of your people. And I pray to those who are separated from you that today will be a moment in which they say, I desperately need Christ. Father, I thank you again for the power of the gospel. Strengthen us now to be faithful, to worship and serve you in spirit and in truth. We love you, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Todd Young with Greensburg Baptist Church. 
Thank you for joining us today. If you've accepted Christ during today's podcast, we would love to hear from you and connect you with a home church in your area. Or if you have questions regarding a relationship with Christ, Brother Blake and I would love to speak with you. Please contact us at the church office at 270-932-4495 or connect with us through our website at greensburgbaptist.com. In addition, you may visit our website anytime to access the sermon videos and podcast of any recent sermon. You may also subscribe to our podcast in the iTunes store. Have a great day today.